0: Uh, Anyway, uh, sometimes uh, some of our GCs ask us, you know, is there something else we can study uh, during a sermon series? And so the next sermon series is Stupid Summer. We have this book. uh, It's called... Timothy Keller, Galatians, for you, Uh, we'd encourage you if you're in a GC and you would like something extra rather than just the sermon notes in your GCs to talk about, you pick up this book. There's 13 chapters. There's 13 weeks in the stupid summer. Uh, Mikey, uh, if you would like, he's going to make a bulk copy, so they're a little cheaper if you buy them in bulk. Uh, Sign up in the back if you'd like some copies for yourself. The book, for some reason, it's small, but it's not cheap. We have no idea why. Apparently, Timothy Keller needs the money for something. So... Anyway, <clears throat> or his Publisher does, whatever. So uh, do that. And, uh, okay. You ready, Paul? Okay. I, I got to do this right every week, unless Paul's like, ah! Okay, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. <laughs> oh, cut, new take, right? Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you don't need to shut it off. All you've got to do is uh, download an app. It's called YouVersion. Click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS. You'll get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with what we're talking about. Today, why don't you stand on me reading to God's Word. <clears throat> this is Job 42. Verses 1 and 2, and it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we, as your people, would be those who understand that you are a God who reigns in sovereignty, and that whether we are in sin or whether we are in obedience, you will bring about the purposes that you have. So help us to be those who trust and honor you in all things. Amen. Have a seat. Okay. So uh, today we are going to end the book of Genesis, though we will come back to it again and again. Trust me, I, I hope you've enjoyed it, if not, oh well, year and a half of your life out. so I told you this a few weeks ago. I know it feels like after a year and a half, you're graduating, so you know, take your Element Bible if you've got one, have everybody sign it to my new SBFF forever. Sweet, wonderful, whatever. Uh, As we end the book of Genesis, I'm going to start by asking you a question, and that question is, why are we here? Why did God make the human race? Because it is not because he was lonely. It was not because he needed worship. It was not because of any defect in God's character whatsoever. The idea of why he created people is the great backdrop to the book of Genesis. It runs all the way through Revelation. And when we as people see and we begin to understand the fullness of the Scripture, we begin to see how the Bible literally transforms people's lives and the full understanding of that leading to the person of Jesus. We see what it means for the kind of relationship we are supposed to have with God and what kind of relationship. We are supposed to have with each other. So to end Genesis, we're going to talk about God's people, uh, God's community, the church—not the building, but the people within it. Why they matter so much to God, and why they're supposed to matter to the church. Got a lot of ground to cover. I mean, one of those messages again where I give you just a ton of information, and you can go back and listen to it if you want. Take notes. Hopefully, you'll get it by the end of this. Just roll up your sleeves. Been through Genesis. There's a lot of these, so you should be okay with your learning at this point. So first, when we start, we've got to start a little before Genesis was written because everything has a context. So you've got to understand Genesis in its context. It's important whenever you come to the Bible to read it in context. Like in Matthew 18, verse 8, Jesus says, And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Context is very important. We'll all be hobbling around on crutches with hands that couldn't actually hold them because we cut them off. Okay, so you understand when you come to Genesis, Genesis did not get written in a vacuum. All right? Israel is surrounded by cultures. There's primarily Mesopotamia, there's Sumerians, Assyrians, the, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, and then especially were the Egyptians. All of these different countries had all of their own religions. They all had gods. The gods had different names, but they had one thing in common, is that they, they viewed everything as a hierarchy, everything. And so on the top, You would have the gods, okay? Whatever gods, whatever countries that were the gods, all these cultures were polytheistic, multiple gods. Like if you've ever seen Wrath of the Titans and you got, you know, Zeus and Hermes and Poseidon and Hades, like, release the Kraken! Right, that's... Multiple gods. Underneath the gods, you would have the king of whatever country you resided in. Underneath the king, there was the court. This would be the nobles and the priests reported directly to the king. Underneath them, you would have the merchants and the artisans and the craftspeople and the academics. And then beneath them, who were considered the dregs of humanity, you would then have the peasants and the slaves. And there's not really a lot of people underneath the peasants and the slaves except mainly people in boy bands. And... (laughs) And those who don't know how to use roundabouts, anybody who makes light beer, and Twilight fans. <laughs> You're a Twi-hard, you know right where you fit, so there you go. So was like, I hate that church. He made fun of Twilight. <laughs> Vampires burst into flame in the sun. They don't sparkle. <laughs> what is wrong with you? All right. So, amen. Thus says Aaron. Okay, so everybody in any of these ancient cultures, including Mesopotamia, saw and they treated their king as divine or semi-divine. The king was understood to be made in the image of God. And so when you come to the scriptures, there's the word for image that's actually used throughout the scriptures. It is this word called selim. Uh, when you see it written in Hebrew, it looks like teslim. Uh, the T is silent, so it's just selim. And this word is actually probably borrowed from these cultures that were around the Israelites. Only a country's king was thought to be made in the image of the Selim of a god. And that is the dividing line between the king and everybody else. Peasants and slaves were not made in the image, in the Selim of God. And they had been created maybe by lesser gods, by inferior gods, by twilight fan gods, whatever they are, something less. And so the king was the mediator between God and everybody Else, the Selem is also this word that they use for idols, for images. And so all these religions would have their images and their idols, and all these idols were controlled by the priests who were under the king. So everything went through the king. In order to have access to heaven or the gods, you went through the king. Now, when Genesis is written, it's going to challenge and change all of this. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, there's a very different account of creation. In Genesis, it is the spirit of the one true God who hovers over the surface of the waters. Over the course of seven days, there is creation. During these seven days, God makes seven speeches. The final one ordains the Sabbath day as being holy. The writer of Genesis deliberately uses language that would be indicative of a king. God is placed in a royal role. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God says, Let there be light, and there was light. That is how a king reigned. Royal proclamation. Let there be taxes. And there were taxes. And lo and behold, the people were thus afraid. So, so God is portrayed as a sovereign king, not an earthly king. We are told in the seventh day God finished what he has been doing, and then we'll come back to that in just a little bit. Now, when I say that God is portrayed as a sovereign king, Genesis doesn't just say God's a sovereign king. It also says he is generous and he is wise. He delights in his creation. In Genesis 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. See, the very good part of his creation means it is filled with the glory and the character and the goodness and the generosity of God who made it. And then God creates a special place in the midst of his creation for human beings, and this is called the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis chapter 2, you learn little facts about the Garden of Eden. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, There are rivers of water that flow. In verse 12, you are told that there is gold of that land and it is good, as opposed to all the bad gold, right? You're like, no, gold's good. Gold is good, but there's a reason for the goodness. And then also verse 12, we're told there's aromatic resin and onyx are also there. So why does the writer talk about water that flows? Because this later becomes representative of the flowing spirit of God. Why does the writer say there is gold and resin and onyx? Because later these materials are going to be used in making the temple. It's gold to make it beautiful, resin to make it smell good, and onyx, which is a precious stone at this time. These are all used for worship of God, but they're especially present in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, you says you hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's supposed to represent that the entire Higher earth is God's temple, but the garden was like the most holy place, the holy of holies. So when the temple temple gets built, it kind of reflects that. Adam and Eve are meant to be priests in that garden with God. And when it comes to human beings, you see something very interesting really quick in the book of Genesis. Back to Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And go to verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. The word in the Hebrew right there that it uses for the image of God is the word Selim. In the image of God, God created all human beings. This statement by the writer of Genesis is the single most world-changing statement about human dignity, worth, and equality that has ever been recorded. We today still live our lives betting on that verse, on what God has said. People who are believers and people who are not. That we don't see ourselves as beneath the king or beneath other people. We see the equality of people around us and it stems out of the book of Genesis. Imagine what it would do to the hearts of peasants and slaves to be told that not just the king, but you too are made in the image of the one true God. The selim of the one true God. Male and female, slaves and peasants made in God's image. And so God's people were supposed to become this community who began to live this, who treated everybody else as if they were already a king. Nobody on the top, nobody on the bottom. The community where maybe someone who had billions of dollars would look at somebody who is homeless and not just see a homeless person. They would see somebody with dignity, value, and worth because that's just how they saw the world. And they're not just trying to be nice. That's how they actually see the world. Imagine you get somebody who's really powerful, owns a corporation. you got someone who is jobless, and they begin to treat that person like they're a king. What if young and old and black and white and male and female all came together? This is why self-esteem courses, I think, are a joke, because they, one, try to convince us that there is no God, and secondly, then if there is a God, then that God is you, and they try to make you happy about all that. But the truth is that you are made in the image of God. You have dignity, value, and worth because God made you in His image. It's not because you're so wonderful. It's because He is so wonderful, the Latin phrase for this is the Imago Dei. In Hebrew, this would be the Selim Elohim, the image of God. This is why when we mistreat each other, it's very serious to God. Now flip over to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. Noah comes out of the ark, and God gives the rule of law. And one of the rules of law is you're not supposed to murder people. That's taking an innocent life. Okay, you're not supposed to murder people. It says, From this, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse six, why? Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. Because in the image of God, God made man. Kind. You have never looked at a human being on this planet that has not been made in the image of God. It doesn't matter. You meet them on the street corner and they're just crazy or whatever it is. They're ragged. It doesn't matter. They are made in the image of God. This is revolutionary to the world at the time, and I think it's still revolutionary today. Another Genesis of Genesis distinctive is that every other religion in the ancient world, you had this idea. Here's the king. We worship that king, and, and he's God over all. All of us. And so you had this man who was worshipped as a god. They believed that that man was, was part of God's divine plan and you were supposed to worship him. Now, when Israel becomes a nation, it's a completely different story. They, when they become a nation, didn't even have a king for centuries of their existence. And the only way they got a king was when they start to go beg the prophet Samuel to give them one. In First Samuel chapter 8, if you want to flip there. You don't have to, but you might like I gotta find that, okay. But anyway, first Samuel chapter eight, Samuel is an old prophet. The Israelites go to him, and this is what they say in first Samuel chapter eight, verse five. They first say, Behold, you are old, which is really nice to say to someone who's old, you are old. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And Samuel tries to talk them out of that. He goes, this is not God's best for you. You've got to trust him for what he wants. But the people refused to listen. Verses 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. You know, isn't that a good reason to want a king, right? They sound like second graders. We want a king. Everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? We're the 99%. Stand up. Give us a king. (laughs) So God says to Samuel, okay, Samuel, give him a king. It's not you they're rejecting. They are rejecting me. And God is still going to bring about his purposes, but God now simply works through their sin instead of their obedience. And now it just becomes a lot more painful for the Israelites. And nobody else had a story like this where the king doesn't even come until centuries later in their story. And it's a concession because the people are whining. See, Genesis, the Bible, brings a revolutionary understanding of humanity and God, that we understand that it is God's story that he is writing and that God has written us into his narrative. So often Christianity gets treated as, oh, I'm going to invite God into my life, like you're inviting God to be a bit player in your story. That is not how it works. It is God's story. We are written into his story, and you have to understand it like that. You are made in the image of God. That is important. And the fact that you are made in the image of God tells you about your value you and your worth but also about your destiny there's very clear historical context of this notion of being made in the image of god in the ancient world there is no media there's no internet there's no newspapers so what kings would do is they would take images of themselves and they make statues and they would send them to the far-flung reaches of their empire so people would know who the king of this empire actually is You get to the book of Exodus, and God comes and talks to his people, and one of the Ten Commandments says, You don't make any graven images of me. You don't make any images of me. Why are you not supposed to make any images of God? Because God already has made images of himself. It is his people that he created. I'm going to borrow from N.T. Wright here. N.T. Wright says this, So God has placed his own image, human beings, into his world so that the world can see who its ruler really is. That is made in the image of God. What it means to be made, it's not not this quality or that quality or whether you have reason or free will or something like that. It's about your role in the cosmic scheme of things. You are made to reign under God's character, in God's power, in God's stead for the benefit of the earth so all the earth would see whose reign it is under. God, instead of placing little icons of himself all over, has taken and placed his image in his people. You are made in the image of God. And God's plan is to graciously share his power by creating a community of people who come together and exercise dominion through his strength marked by his goodness. That is what you and I are supposed to be. See, there's this tiny picture of this in the Garden of Eden, where God comes and he he brings the animals to the man. And in Genesis 2.19, it says, Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. God doesn't name the animals himself. He lets man do it. I think Adam gets a little bored when he gets the dog. He's like, we're going to call that one dog. That's your name backwards. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, it's not funny, Adam. I get it, all right? We're just now going to give you this thing called dyslexia. Bam, right? Now, I don't know if you ever had a pet. What do you, you name your pet, right? Because it's like, I know people who don't even have a, an animal, but they have a fish, and they name their fish. It's like we've got this thing in us that, that wants us to name things, which people sometimes have asked me, you know, are dogs going to be in heaven? Of course dogs are going to be in heaven. There won't be any cats, but there will be dogs <laughs> in heaven. Now, okay. (laughs) It's like, seriously? Twilight and cats and we're just going, we're just going. So the idea, beginning to end of Genesis, is about this image of God. Through us, through our learning, through our cultures, through our relationships, through our technology, through our arts, through our medicines, we are to steward with God. We are to, with humility, add goodness and beauty to families and neighborhoods and societies and nations, to people who are hungry and homeless with no education, that God's people would have his entire creation come to a point because we're living in his image, and the whole creation begins to take delight in God's glorious goodness because we are made in the image of God. Now the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.14 says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, that's the story. That's the narrative right there. It isn't an accident. It is God's story that he's writing. The earth is not some blob of protoplasm that's floating around the universe. We're like, whoa, what are we doing on this blob? No, God has a plan. And your story will only make sense when you understand it in the context of God's story. And this is why you call this the Genesis of Genesis. N.T. Wright says this. He says, your destiny, and he says it again, your destiny is to contribute more creative God-given goodness to the earth than you can currently imagine than to offer more earthly joy and gratitude to God that you can currently contain. That's our job. It's our job. Now think about it. How's your job going? Like, yeah, not, not so good. You know, not so good. But think about this. You also have eternity before you, before you more than you could ever imagine, to continue to bring this about. I mean, God calls us his priests. A priest is a bridge between God and people. The praise and the glory of the earth will flow through you to be offered to God. That's the genesis of Genesis. So think about that. How is that genesis of Genesis going? Is the earth pretty much covered with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea today? Thank you. One person. No? No? I live on the earth. I saw twilight. No, right? Oh, my goodness. It? I mean, this is, this is the deal because, because we're supposed to reflect the glory and the goodness of God, but instead we're busy trying to shine forth our own glory. We're trying to show everybody what we are. I want to reign. I want my will to be done, not God's will. And then when praise and glory do come, we refuse to turn and offer that back up to God. We we want it to come to us because sin and pride and selfishness and deceit and all the rest has robbed us of the image of God we were created in. We forget what we were really supposed to be. And so the earth becomes filled with violence and hatred and cruelty. Sin makes us want to rule on our own, to make all the decisions for ourselves rather than trusting the God who made us. We want our own way. And sin makes us want to attract praise and worship for ourselves rather than giving it to God. It has messed everything up. And this is also what you see throughout the Genesis of Genesis. You see, after sin comes into the world, you have thorns and thistles. You see, work is now by the sweat of your brow and it is hard. You see, men and women in a dominance war all throughout Genesis, all throughout today, men and women fighting for who's going to have dominance. You have conflict and anger and resentment and death. Anybody here ever mismanaged conflict? Okay, you ever nurse resentment deep inside of you? You ever get mad at somebody and not go directly to them, but talk to everybody else about why you have resentment towards them and why you're irritated with them? You ever send a sarcastic email? Okay, the people over here did. Maybe I'm over here. You guys are, you guys are perfect, all right? See, what begins to happen is we become a people who destroy the community God intended for us to create we instead damage other people and ourselves. And this seriously violates the image of God that we were created in. It blasphemes the image of God that we were created in. And we become the kind of people who cannot live the Genesis of Genesis. I mean, Adam and Eve, when they leave the garden, God just doesn't stop there. God then goes to Seth and he goes to Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And you get all the way to the book of Exodus and you get to a place called Mount Sinai. And God's gonna make another covenant with this people known as the 10 commandments, where there's almost everybody has heard of but before he gives the ten commandments the chapter before exodus 20 exodus 19 that's how numbers work by the way exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 god says for all the earth is mine it's his temple okay it's no you know all this he cares for it for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation the wording there is no accident you will be priests you're going to bring worship to god you will be a kingdom you're going to bring god's dominion to the earth and after that god makes his covenant After he does that, he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law. And a lot of people say, well, why don't we just keep going into Exodus? That would be really interesting to see what happens after Genesis because you'd get bored halfway through. Because halfway through, what happens is God starts giving all of these things about how you're supposed to make this thing called the tabernacle. It's like the last half of Genesis. It's like, I am lost. I'm bored. I have no idea what's going on with this. But this is the idea that the tabernacle was meant to be this holy place that God would express his presence on the earth. And it's getting kind, of, kind of tedious in the last part of Exodus, but one thing is really interesting, and that's the size of the structure. Now, in a second, I'm going to have you turn to the person next to you, and I want you to tell them how big you think the tabernacle was, how big you think the structure was that for all of Israel to see the presence of God. Now, by way of reference, this room is 30 by 40. Okay, So by reference of that, how big do you think that God told the Israelites to make this thing called the tabernacle? Just turn to the person next to you and tell them. I don't know. Big? Okay, if you didn't say it in cubits, you're wrong. If you translate this to feet, uh, the, the temple or the, the tabernacle would be 45 feet by 15 feet. 15 feet. That's all the bigger that it was. Now, Why? Because it's not about the tabernacle, it's about who indwelled the tabernacle. And what you also understand is that the Israelites loved this thing called the tabernacle. The construction, the creation of the tabernacle, it took seven days. During the creation of the tabernacle, God makes seven speeches to Moses about the creation of the tabernacle. The seventh speech is about setting aside this tabernacle and about the Sabbath day being holy. In Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters before everything starts getting made. In Exodus, it says that the Spirit of God fills this guy named Bezalel, and he's a craftsman about how to make this tabernacle. It is the first time anybody is said to be filled with the Spirit of God, and it is an artist. The entrance to the tabernacle, God says, is to face the east. The Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God, is meant to be in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And it's guarded by cherubim. The Holy of Holies is decorated with gold. It is sweetened by incense. The breastplate of Aaron, the high priest, who can only go in there because he's the high priest. He has a stone on his breastplate, and it's made of onyx. See, in Genesis chapter 2, when creation is done, the text said, and so God finished the work. And then God's presence comes, and he walks in the garden in the cool of the day. In Exodus, when the tabernacle is done, God fills the temple so intensely that we're told Moses couldn't even enter it. It was filled with the presence of the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. Why did Israel love the tabernacle? Because it is all creation in miniature. It's a picture, it's a symbol to Israel. Every time they see it, it's an expression of God and what he tends to do in his whole creation His people made in his image that he will dwell with them. His creation will see his glory and that Genesis is not over yet. Now open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 because ultimately in the culmination of this, Jesus comes and the culmination of all these things always point to Jesus. John is always very specific in the things that he says in his gospel. It is the last one written, so he's making a point John chapter 1 verse 14 says this the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the word for dwelt there is the word tabernacle so it literally says and he tabernacled among us and we have seen his what his glory his glory that's what we have seen glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth And what John is saying is, in Jesus, God is beginning Genesis all over again at infinite cost. It is a new creation. On the cross where Jesus dies for my sin and yours, he says, it is finished. At the end of creation, God says, it is finished. At the end of the tabernacle, Moses says, it is finished. At the end of the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. And now, finally, all the damage that sin did that started all the way back in Genesis has been defeated. It is finished. And when he said that, then in the temple that was built, there was a curtain in there. And the curtain that kept people out of the most holy place, that curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom, meaning that God ripped that curtain so people have access to who he is. And it's not just that we get to go in. The point is that God came out and he dwells in the midst of his people who are made in his image. So how does this work out? What does this new creation look like? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-5, through five, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones will be built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And now the glory of God is somehow seen on this earth, not in a tent, and it's not in a building, but in the unity and harmony and love of a community of redeemed men and women coming together through the oneness of God's Spirit, purchased at the cross to live in the image of God. This is why Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. And think about that. How's that going for you? Because you are called to be a priest. You are called to be someone who shines worship and glory up to God. We are called to be a kingdom who live and reign as image bearers of God so this entire world knows who he is. Do you know every time that you forgive somebody, every time you reconcile, every time you include somebody who has been left out, every time you encourage somebody who is down, every time you love somebody who is lonely, that is the genesis of Genesis That is beginning to live in the presence of God. The reign of God on the earth and the glory of God rising up to heaven. We need to exchange our hearts that have become so hard for living hearts that beat and breathe. So we become the kings and the priests that make and bring heaven to earth. You are made in his image. You must understand that this is God's story that we are in. And we live this as his image bearers. And if you understand that, that will completely change how you live your life completely change it because you realize it is not about you it is about him and yes sometimes people come and they hurt you and they say bad things about you and all this stuff but it's ultimately god's story and you are an image bearer of who he is and that means your dignity and worth comes from him because he has placed it upon you because he is infinitely good This is why we come to communion every single week. Communion is the place where we remember what Christ has done for us, where Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. So you break that cracker like his body was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine and the grape juice representing his blood that was shed for you and I, so that we as a people can enter in, live in the new creation like he rises from the dead as his image bearers. And we become completely different because we understand who he is and what he has done. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you to sing these songs with them. And if you need prayer, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And maybe if you've lived your life seeing it as your story that you've just kind of invited God into and you need that better perspective, they'd love to pray with you about that. Maybe, you know, you're in a place where you, someone has hurt you and, you and you cannot get past that. And it's like, you know, how do I live as an image bearer of God when I've got so much resentment deep inside of me? Well, they'd love to pray with you about that as well. You know, they would love just to pray with you if you have any type of prayer request. But we need to be a people who understand to live in the image of God. There's offering boxes on the side and wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of our worship. So you have that opportunity every single week. We believe it's important to offer it to you and there's some food and stuff in the back, and we invite you guys to grab something to eat, or more importantly, grab a sandwich outside, help the kids go to camp so they can learn how to be image bearers of God, apparently by kicking kids off enter tubes and stuff like that. Guys, <laughs> if I could you know, admonish you and encourage you in one thing, it is to remember you are made in the image of God, but don't just focus it upon yourself. You need to remember that those around you are also made in the image of God. And sometimes we mar that. Sometimes it doesn't reflect him very well. But people have dignity, value, and worth because they're made in God's image, because God is good and holy and right. I want you guys to pray with me. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who reflect you properly, who honor you because of what you have already done and said about your people. Father, I ask that we would begin to live lives as your image bearers that the entire world would know whose reign it is under not by running around and screaming in people's faces or holding the signs but by simply living as your image bearers that your heart for this world would be known by how our heart bleeds for the world around us as well that everything that we do Would more and more reflect the God whose image we are made in. So, today, remind us and renew us, like you're renewing your creation, that as we walk out these doors, we need to have a different perspective of the world around us, the one that you have one that fully honors you and that we would be a people who learn to live and walk by faith even when we don't understand the things that are going on around us. But we would know we have a king who is sovereign, who is good and has written us into his story and it is all about you. Have us be a people who truly live as your image bearers, who truly live the genesis of all that the scriptures were teaching and all that your Son came to do in and through us. We ask these things in your Son's good name. Amen.